0: Well, that's the reason why they call us Fellowship Bible Church, huh? We like to fellowship. Well, once again, good morning, and we're just so delighted that you're here. As uh, William said, if you're visiting with us, uh, my wife and I will be back here in Guest Central at the end of the service. We'd love, love, love to say hello to you uh, and uh, answer any, any questions that, that, you may, that you may have. I hope, I hope you got plans this summer to relax, you know? And to chill a little bit, Uh, I say that because this is one busy church. Y'all work hard at this place. And so let's take some time to enjoy our families this summer and to enjoy one another, right? Some of you say, well, I'd rather burn out for Jesus than rust out. Well, out is out whether you burn out or rust out. We don't want you out. Okay, so let's just just, just do that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Bible, pad, device, whatever you might have, Philippians chapter, chapter 2. Don't want, know where it is, look it up in the table of contents there, Philippians chapter, chapter 2. Holy Father, we bow before your presence to thank you for your goodness and grace and thank you for what you've done in our hearts and lives. Lord, will you help us to cultivate gratitude in our lives. Lord, you, you, you've been good to us. And so much about joy has to do with remembrance, and may we remember, Lord Jesus, uh, the blessing and the hand of God and the favor of God in our lives. So during those challenging times, we'll go back to the book of remembrance, and it will see us through. Strengthen us, speak to us today, Father, I ask of you, I ask of you, Lord God, that you help us, all of us live in the context of relationships, some of which have I've been painful, and I pray today that you'll give us hope and direction. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've not been here with us, started last week this series entitled Choose Joy. It's based on the book of Philippians. I shared last week that the book of Philippians uh, uh, is a rich book in my life. Often when I go through hard times, challenging times, a little bit discouraged or disappointed or down, I find myself wandering to the book of Philippians. Now, you might say, choose joy. That sounds a little bit weird. Isn't joy an involuntary response to great things that happen? Well, therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. Because as we look at the book of Philippians, and not only the book of Philippians, but throughout the Bible, but particularly in the book of Philippians, you find Paul using the term joy or the joy group of words 14 times. But he often links joy with another word that he uses about 10 times The the Greek word phroneo, or mind. And then when you look at the texts in which he uses joy and mind, he often will, in the media context, talk about the will and choice. And so although joy is an emotion, that's true, joy is an emotion, but it is also a decision and choice. And I need to say this to us because we really need to get this here. The Apostle Paul, counter to what we feel in our culture and society, where we think with our feelings, the Apostle Paul makes the assumption that the will can control the emotions. That's not being emotionally inauthentic, by the way. He makes the assumption that the will can control the emotions. And so he says, for example, I quoted this from Philippians 4, 6. We've quoted, be anxious for nothing. He, well, he commands us. That's an emotion. Stop being anxious. He makes the, makes, the, makes the observation that your will can control these things. So thus, 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 the title, choose joy. Choose joy. The other thing I would say is that joy is not cheap. Joy is very expensive. And that's not just some cute play on words. Joy is costly. And we tend to get joy, and you'll find this a little bit later on as we wander through the passage here, we tend to uh, uh, be most joyful concerning the things that have cost us the most. We'll see this in in a few moments. So, Here in chapter one is choose joy in in your circumstances. Today I'm going to talk about choose joy in in our relationships. And, And then we're going to talk about chapter three, choose joy in our pursuit of Christ. And then chapter four, choose joy in our overall outlook on life. But today we're going to talk about choosing joy in our relationships. Let's face it, nothing can cause us more pain and more heartache than broken relationships. Trust has been violated. Um, disappointment, expectations. The truth of the matter is all of us, there is not a person who lives in, in true isolation. Oh, you might be a loner and you might not get with people, but even in your mind, your mind is connected to other relationships. We all live in relationship. And the problem with relationship is that there is not a perfect person. We hurt each other. We are sinful. We bring unrealistic expectations to relationships. We look to people to give us what only God can give us. We get disappointed. We make promises that we cannot fulfill. We make commitments that we can't fulfill. We got little quirky things about us, idiosyncratic nonsense about us that bugs people. We're like porcupines. There are personality differences. Some of us suck all the air out of the room when we walk into it. And, and you know, we got, all this, we got all this drama in our lives. We, we, got, we got kids who are all different in our families. And, you know, we got all this stuff. And most, most, most churches break up and most organizations break up and most companies have problems based upon relational nonsense, relational stuff, relationships. We live in relationship. So Paul here in Philippians chapter 2 is talking about oh, how do I choose joy in relationships? There are people that we don't like. There people my like, I don't like. I love them, but I don't like them. You know, and y'all don't like me either. Well, if I might meet you, the feelings be mutual. Right? So, <laughs> no. I mean, we're we're all we're all there. We're all there. Now, I want to say this up front here uh, because I, I it it begs to be said. Listen to me. Listen to me. Uh, this might surprise you, but there's some relationships that we ought to get out of. That's true. Uh, the Bible teaches that. There are some relationships that we ought to get out of. The Apostle Paul says in what uh, Romans uh, chapter chapter 12, what is that, verse 18? Uh, verse if at all possible, as much as it relies or rests upon you, live at peace with all men. Okay? The very way that he phrased that, this is the same one that writes Philippians chapter 2. The very way that he phrases that, he says sometimes it's not possible to live at peace with people. And the Bible teaches that we should not be in those damaging, dysfunctional, sinful relationships. No, you got to get away from that. But here's the problem. Uh, It only takes one to forgive, but it takes two to reconcile. So sometimes, you know, you can't be in a relationship with a person. Why, it may not be the ball, it may not be in your court, it may be on them, and they refuse to do that, and so you shouldn't be held hostage to that. So I'm not talking about sinful dysfunction, people who will not repent of their sins, and this kind of abusive relational nonsense that glows in the dark. We, we all know what that is. Paul's not talking about that. But he is, he is talking about pressing into even difficult relationships here in Philippians chapter 2. So the question is this. What does it look like? What does a person look like who chooses joy in relationships? What does it look like? And I am going to outline the text applicationally. Now, I'm only going to cover up through verse 18, um, and I'm not going to touch on verses 19 through the end because Paul uses two relationships in his life as an illustration of what he's talking about, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But I think that there are four things, four characteristics of people who choose joy in their relationships. Now, this is work. This is intentionality. But they're characterized by these four things. Number one, they fight for unity. They fight for unity. Uh, Number two, they act like Jesus. That's the import of the illustration that he gives here. Number three, they look to God to validate them. And then number four, they remember and realize that there's a lot at stake. And so... Paul does not deal with these relational issues with a quid pro quo mindset. And he adhere say you can massage and this kind of thing. He 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 deals with it in a very serious way. And I, you'll see this later on as I'll get to this, this whole issue of of, of, of uh, remembering that there's a lot at stake. I'll tip my hand right now because Paul is saying, look, 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 look. you got to be careful with your relationships if you follow Jesus. It's no private matter. The condition of your relationships is not a private matter. It's a public thing. So the very first thing that he says here, these people who choose joy in their relationships are number one. They are are characterized by by this ability to fight for unity. Where do you get that from? Well, let's look at the first four verses, actually first five verses. He says... So, if there is any encouragement in Christ and comfort from love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with, uh, uh, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition, etc. But let me just park there for a moment in that, that those first two verses there. The first thing that I would say is that this unity that he's talking about, that we're fighting for, it reflects Christ. He picks up his pen. He had some inkling that there are some relational challenges going on here at the church at Philippi. There's some issues happening here. And what does he do? He says, whoa, well, whoa, hold, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. The very place, first place I want to start with is, look, 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 look. Your, 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 your unity reflects Jesus. And if there's any compassion, and there is. If there's any encouragement, and there is. If there's any comfort, and there is. The way you complete my joy and experience joy yourself, by the way, is act like Jesus. or remember that it reflects who Christ is. Those who have come to enjoy encouragement, love, and fellowship with Christ and with his spirit should... Live in harmony with one another. Why? Because it portrays Christ. Now, I do have to say this that there's a difference between unity and uniformity. Uh, true unity is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And thus the emotional statements that he's appealing to them with. Paul doesn't blast them. He says, "Look, look, 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 there's comfort in Jesus. there's encouragement in Jesus. You know, there's sympathy in Jesus. You've experienced this. This true unity is a matter of the heart. Now, uniformity is the result of pressure from without. Now you know how that is. as as parents, we've all done this. One of your kids smacks the other his sibling upside the head. No, they've done that, and you know you say, "He says, but they hit me in the head with his toy." I say, "Come here, boy." Did you hit your sister? Yeah, but you're talking too much. A simple yes would be the answer. Did you hit your sister? Yes. And then this is what we do. Tell your sister you're sorry. No, no. Well, this is what's going to happen if you don't. I'm sorry. That's uniformity. That ain't unity right there, you know. They did it because they were forced to do it. Well, Paul's not talking about that level he so said, if you've experienced the hope and the help and the refreshment that comes from Jesus, if you know of his love, if you know of his tenderness, his unconditional love, if you know of his acceptance, if you know anything of his compassion, and he has that, then what I want you to do is to live out that in your relationships. I think what he's saying here, don't, ref, don't, don't face your relationships with a negative mindset. Some of us, please forgive me, we just got too much of an edge to us. Somebody's hurt us, somebody's messed over us, somebody's disappointed us or whatever it might be. And we, we, we enter relationships with our guards. i saying, you're not going to hurt me, I'm going to try you out here. I'm going to fix this, thing. you know. You say, oh, stop it. Paul says, let your guard down. Let your guard down. This is the way you should approach it. God's not defensive with you. This unity also is destroyed by selfishness. That's what the text says. Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility. Count others more important or more significant than yourselves. Paul says, look, 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 if you want to destroy unity real quickly, be headstrong. Be my way or the highway. Use people. Some of us who are task-oriented, please forgive me for this, but I just need to be straight up. Some of us who are task-oriented, some of us who who are driven by objectives, we like to accomplish things. you got to be very careful in your relationships. Don't use people to get to where you need to be. That's what I'm trying to say, and that's what Paul is saying here. Be careful of, of my way or the highway in your relationships. Don't mess over, folks. People are not strategic elements to help you to get to where you need to be. And we've got to be very careful of being utilitarian in our relationships. He's also talking about being very careful about having to be the alpha male or the alpha female in your relationships. Where everything depends upon whether or not you're agreed with or rather not you're, you know, I've got to be right. I've got to have my way. The term conceit is all about. It's all about you. And I got to tell you, I've run into a lot of those people in my life. I have to be careful with that in my own heart and life because I'm fairly goal-oriented. And I've got to be very, very careful now. Crawford, Crawford, your agenda is not more important than people. God will always accomplish that which concerns you. Did you hear me? Did you hear what I said? Did you hear what I said? God will always accomplish that what what concerns you. You don't have to orchestrate your future and you don't have to mess over people and you don't have to chew up relationships to get to where you need to be. And so he warns us here, don't be headstrong, don't be conceited, don't be an alpha male, don't be an alpha female in your relationships. That destroys it. This this selfishness, a spirit of pride in our relationships indicates a lack of humility before God. In fact, that's the next thing. He says this unity is sustained or nurtured by humility. This is what he says in verse 4. Let each of you look not to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Humble yourself. And we're going to see this in in a moment. Uh, humility is not the abdication of station or selfhood did you hear what I said humility is not the denial of your worth in fact you can't be humble unless you know that you have something that's not what humility is all about and this these verses have been I think misquoted because he says uh, uh, uh back up to verse three Uh, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He doesn't say that others are more significant than you. He said that count them as more significant than you. This speaks of security. It's as if God said, look, I got you, okay? I got you, Crawford. I'm not going to allow you to miss anything that I have in store for you. Nobody's going to take anything away from you that that, that I have in store for you. So what what I need you to do is to treat people as if they're more important than you. They're not more important than you, but you treat them that way. Don't lead with your interests, but you lead with the interests of others. You know, preoccupation with yourself, basically what Paul is saying is sin, preoccupation with you is sin preoccupation with me is sin and that's the reason why we fall out of relationships with people because they didn't give me what I wanted they didn't resource me and so we quickly we quickly, quickly move on you know pride and selfishness contaminates relationships just contaminates them and basically, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So first of all, what we really need to do here, as we look at our relationships and we say, I want to choose joy in, this, in, in my relationship. Remember, joy is not cheap. We saw that in choosing joy in circumstances. Where Paul was, he had to willfully choose and decide. So it is in relationships. It doesn't come naturally. He said, so the first thing I am going to do is that I'm going to fight for unity. I'm going to fight for oneness. So i got to look out beyond myself. The second thing we need to do do is to act like Jesus. One of the problems with reading our Bibles is that sometimes we come across our favorite Bible passage. And we lift up our favorite passage. And we can present it out of its context. Now, I'm I'm treading on a little little gently here. Because what we're getting ready to get into is really the high watermark in terms of Christology in the New Testament. It is an enormous passage. But the primary intent of Paul giving this Christological profile of the incarnation and the death of our Lord and Savior and his exaltation is not to talk necessarily about that, but in its context, he's using Jesus as the ultimate illustration in terms of what relationships should be about. And so I'm going I'm to lift the four statements that I really believe are implied by Paul in this illustration. In, in, in fact, he's saying relationships in the body of Christ, relationships among Christians are so important. The, 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 the condition of those relationships are so important that I got to give you the ultimate illustration to underscore how important they are. It's not just a matter of your preference or compartmentalize a little messy relationship that you got over here and you get on with your life. Oh, no, 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 no. And he gives us the ultimate illustration, but he sets it up here in verse five. He goes, uh, "Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Don't skip over those words. This is this is this is pretty pretty incredible stuff here. Paul says, "I need you to think about your relationship." And your relationships and act and think the same way that Jesus does but you say I'm not Jesus I'm a fallen person yeah but notice what he says in the text I want you to have this mind among yourselves which is yours In other words, Paul says, "What I'm not ready to tell you, you have the capacity to do this. You've got the capacity to do this. It's yours in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, the capacity to have wonderful, rich, wholesome relationships in terms of your perspective, you can't do what somebody else doesn't want to do, but in terms of your perspective, you've got the capacity and the power to do it. You can think like Jesus. You can act like Jesus. He says, it's yours. It's yours. The only reason why you're dealing with this mess is because you want to. You, you, don't, you don't have to think carnally. You, you can have incredible relationships. But What are you going to have to do? It's costly. You're going to have to act like Jesus. Jesus Christ is a supreme example of humility and selfless concern for others. And that's the whole connection here. He says, I, Jesus didn't look out for his own interest, and neither should you. Jesus gave up, he knew he was, and so should you. So let me make the four statements here that I think Paul is making. And I think you see this in the illustration. This is an illustration in context of, on relationships here. The first statement is this, is that we are secure. That's the very first statement that Paul is making through this illustration. Again, pick it up in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now here you have it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You say, what does that mean? Well, listen, it's, it's pretty straightforward. In other words, when he says a little, it's a little awkward phrasing here, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, meaning this, he knew who he was. He did have to fight for his equality with God. He knew he was equal to God. He knew it. He knew it. And this is important to understand the, his, his humility and his humiliation and his death on the cross. You see, the point being is this, Jesus was not trying to find out who he was and there were some inadequacies and holes in himself and somehow or another, you know, he didn't feel good about himself. He said, can you like me and this kind of thing? No, no, he was secure. He was secure. And this is what, this is what Paul is trying to get across to us. We're secure. Just as Jesus knew who he was, you know who you are. I want to say this to any teenager in this audience right now, and I want you to put it in the back of your mind. You may not realize it until five or ten years later. So just write it down and come back to it. You do not have to borrow your identity or security from other people. Do not borrow your identity or security from any relationship. You bring identity and security to all your relationships. This is the problem with many a young couple. When they get married, they think their new hubby is a fourth member of the Trinity. (laughs) Leroy got some problems, (laughs) y'all. And you're looking for him to be, be what only God can be for you. Now, you bring that sense of security with you. You bring that sense of value with you, and every time you start looking for other people to give you what only God can give you, you're a mess. You assign yourself to some roller coaster existence, and, and you, 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 you won't like yourself. You are secure. I made you in the image of God. That's what God says to us. You are valuable. I sent my son to die for you. You've got meaning and purpose. You bring that to life and you bring that to relationships. So it begins with this sense of security. Truly humble. The truly humble person knows himself and accepts himself. That's what true humility is about. You're not truly humble if you're going around and making yourself a secondary appendix to somebody else's life. True humility doesn't do that. True humility accepts itself. Just like Jesus, he he yielded himself to, to be a servant for the glory of God and the good of others. But he knew where he came from. He knew where he came from. Only secure people are healthy givers. Did you hear what I said? Only secure people in relationships are healthy givers. Insecure people tend to drain life from others. Jesus knew who he was. Uh, The the second statement I would make that comes out of this illustration, the first part of verse 7, is that we choose to serve. We are secure, number two, we choose to serve. The opening line of verse 7 says, but emptied himself. Emptied himself. Now, I can get in a the theological ditch here, and I don't, I don't want to go there, but I will say this. Some people have, have, have missed, I think, missed, mistranslated or misapplied this whole idea of Jesus emptying himself. And suffice it to say that Jesus divested himself of self-interest, but not of his deity. And I I justify this by the context. Remember, this is an illustration. He said earlier on, don't look on your own interests, but on the interests of others. So, in the illustration, he says that Jesus emptied himself. Uh, The dot, dot, dot goes back to the self interest piece. He emptied himself of self interest. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He laid aside his self interest to give himself to something that was bigger than himself. And by the way, have you ever noticed that in the Gospels, it is Jesus who is serving others and not others who serve him? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? You read the Gospel, it's not other people serving Jesus, it's Jesus serving other people. You see, humility and sacrifice comes from a heart of security. He knew who he was. And he laid aside, he said, okay, I know who I am. They can't give me an identity. I bring identity to life. I'm not looking for them to give me anything. I bring it to life. And I, I, I got to tell you this, you know, you, know, you know, one of the things I've learned all these years in ministry, I want to tell you something. If you want a clear picture of a person's humility, don't, don't watch how they handle their responsibilities. Don't watch how they use their gifts. Don't, don't, don't watch that. Don't watch that. Don't watch how they're consistent. Don't watch it. You you know what what I've discovered? If you want a real insight to a person's humility, watch how they handle privilege and position. Watch how they handle privilege and position. That is a real insight. You know, (laughs) if they use privilege and position as self-promotion, they're bragging about their bennies and their perks. And they turn everything around to talk about their biographical acceleration and, and what they've done in their life. And they're always talking about what they bring to the dance and to the table. And, you know, in little vague ways, they look like, how great thou art. And they're into that stuff. That's how you really, you really tell. However, if they use privilege and position to empower others... That's true humility. That's true humility. And this is what Jesus did. He, he said, you, you, you're more important. In fact, I'm going to lay aside, I'm going to lay aside my self-interest. And everything that I do with my life is going to be about you. Oh, I'm going to get back there to the right hand of the God, the Father I'm going to get, I still got that chair. But it's all about you. So I'm going to lay that aside And I'm going to use my privilege and I'm going to use my position to empower and deliver your souls. Can you imagine what our church would be like if all of us thought that way? Can you imagine if we were secure enough that we would use whatever platform, whatever visibility we had and say, you know what, it's all about you. Wow, could you, can you imagine what would take place? It's sin, you know, we got too many people. going to, I don't know, I just, nobody paid me attention. And I was wondering, you know, it's, it's, I got uh, stuff. Seriously, I'm only half joking here. The third statement. Yeah. We identify with others. That's the point of this illustration here. He he says in the second part of verse 7, it says, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Paul is purposeful in this illustration because he's underscoring what it takes to have significant, wonderful, redemptive, God-honoring relationships. What did Jesus do? Well, he... That is, he identified with others. There's a whole point. He laid aside his agenda and he became like us. Like us. The larger point here in our relationships is: are we on other people's agenda or do we make them get on ours? Do we really care about where they are? What they're going through? What they're facing? Do we truly identify with it or not? No, I get it. I get it. There's a breakdown here. Certainly, we are at needy places in our lives. And, you know, I just been through something myself where I just needed some help and encouragement. We get there. I got it. But by and large, I just think that we think one way too much. There's a guy that I know, I do call him a friend. Whew. You ever meet with people in your life that when you get after you get finished meeting with them, you need to take a nap? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> this dude is draining. And I got a fair capacity, but I gotta tell you, you, you don't have a conversation with him. You know, when you when you go out to eat lunch with him, you before you get in a restaurant, you go. Okay, strap it on, you sit down, and for the next however long uh, you are just one big ear listening to everything in his life and all that he's been through and what he's up to, and all this other kind of stuff, and then you leave his nerve detection and say, Man, that was a great time. I go, Oh, really, you know now it's a little extreme not 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 all that, <laughs> not all that do we care about others? care about their feelings? where are they? what are they going through? what are they faced with? do we read their hearts? he says See, he became us. I, I need, do need to make a little bit of a theological, theological adjustment. By the way, the word likeness here suggests similarity but difference. Though his humanity was genuine, he was different from all of the human beings in that he was sinless, okay? He became like us in human form, but there was a little bit of a difference. But the point being is his compassion and his total identification with us. The fourth statement is this We willingly sacrifice. And again, this is the point that Paul is making here. He's saying, No, oh, joy is not cheap, joy in relationships is not cheap. No, 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 no. It, it tells the truth about Jesus. Thus, he, he goes to it. There's any compassion and sympathy, etc., etc. No, you got to do this. And I need you to act like him. Verse, uh, verse 8 again, the second part of verse 8, it says, uh, on, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, emphatic, even death on the cross, the extent of his sacrifice. Again, this is an illustration of Relationships. The humility of Jesus not only included his birth, but his death on the cross. The cross was the most cruel, despicable form of death. Again, we saw that a couple of weeks ago. Those of us who, who were in Israel, I was reminded of that when we were at the garden tomb. And the guy told us, he just reminded us once again, you know, he said, one of the great misconceptions about the cross of Christ and, and crucifixion is that people were crucified in some, uh, some hill far away. I like that song, On a Hill Far Away, but it's not biblical. The way the Romans crucified people, no, they, they, they went through a crowded thoroughfare where everybody can watch you. And Jesus was naked on the cross in excruciating pain. And part of the suffering was humiliation. And Jesus did all of that on our behalf. It was cruel. And I think what Paul's point is in in going here with this and this whole sacrifice thing is that many people are willing to serve others as long as it doesn't cost them anything. But service that costs nothing means nothing. There are no cheap crosses, church. There are no cheap crosses. And I don't want to get too mystical about this, but the difficulty in our relationships is a picture of the price that Jesus went to to forgive us of our sins. That was the most difficult thing he had to remove. And so just because it's hard doesn't mean you ought to walk away from it. It requires a degree of sacrifice and we we are filled with most gospel integrity and transparency when we live at the place of sacrifice. Because that's the nature of our relationship relationship with God. The third third thing that uh, these people who are choosing joy and relationships are characterized by, you know, they they they. <laughs> They fight for unity. They act like Jesus. But number three, they look, for, look to God for validation. I won't spend a lot of time here, but this is the whole reason why he adds in here the exaltation of Christ. Again, you've got to keep in mind the context. He's talking about relationships here. And he says, beginning of verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I think that there are two certainties that he's underscoring here. And the reason why I think Paul puts this here is to give us hope. Again, it's an illustration. is to give us hope. To give us hope. The two certainties underscored by him uh, making this observation is that, that, that God will always honor you. God. God will honor you. Not always the people. And in fact, some of us are constantly bruised in our relationships because we're expecting people to give us what only God can give us. And we're always getting our feelings hurt because we've, we've placed them higher than they need to be. Paul is saying by giving this illustration, no, set your hope on God. God frees you. Do what's right by people without quid pro quo. Do what's right by people without reciprocity. Keep your focus on the Lord. God's going to make sure you get what you need. God will always honor you. The other certainty is that God will reward you, even. I'm a testimony to this. I have lived long enough to be messed over and to be hurt but also live long enough to see how God has more than given back what has ever been taken away from me in a relationship. More than done that. And I wish I knew 30 years ago what I know now. I would have spent less time frustrated and angry and upset about what people did. This is why Paul is putting this here. Church, church. God will take care of you. Believe that. Believe it. And that's what 1 Peter 5, 6 is all about. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand. And in due time, he will exalt you. So I think that's the reason why he talks about the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus. His glory far exceeded his pain. And so it will be with you. The fourth and the final characteristic of people who choose joy in their relationships is that they remember there's a lot at stake. Paul gets very sober here. He's through this whole thing, he's sober. But I'm going to walk through a text of scripture that, again, we take out of his context here. And you'll forgive me on this. I think we personalize, we personalize verses 12 and 13 too much. You know, um, we quote these two verses and we want to make it uh, a statement to our personal sanctification. And that's okay. I mean, I think that there's a secondary application here. But keep in mind the context. He's talking about relationships. In this whole chapter, he's talking about relationships. And so what he's saying here, he's talking about not, not you individually. The you here in this, these two verses is you plural. He's talking about the testimony of the church at Philippi. And he's talking about their corporate salvation. I'll read the verses to you. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as uh, in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What he's talking about here is that whatever relational struggles and stuff that you have here, Paul is heightening this thing. He said, oh, 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 (laughs) there's more at stake. There's more at stake. The first thing that is at stake here is that God is is, is in our midst. The expression work out here implies to work to full completion. It's like working out a math problem. It ain't over yet. Just work it till it's full completion. And what he's saying to the church there at Philippi, hey, 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 listen, listen. There's a corporate testimony here. God is at work in your midst. This is a church of the living God. Let me tell you something. What Paul was saying is, look, this ain't no club here, okay? There's no dinner club. This is no, this is no country club here. There's no social club here. This is the church of a living God. You understand me? Fellowship Bible Church is not the Atlanta Country Club. It's not Atlanta National. It ain't East Lake. This is the church of a living God. And what he says, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you, both the will and the do of your... Girl. In other words, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have a prerogative to kick people to the curb. You got to demonstrate the reality that God is in your midst. By how you relate to one another and how you get along with one another. There's a lot more at stake than your personal happiness or your comfort, or I don't like that person, or I don't, I don't care to be around that individual. No, there's a little bit more at stake here. And the second statement that he makes in the next paragraph is that, that uh, uh, the world is watching us. That's what verses 14 through 18 is really all about. I'll just read a few of the verses, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Careful. All right. It's the church to the living God. And God has the power. To straighten out all of our relationships. Not only that, the world is watching us in terms of how we handle our relationships. I can tell you nightmare stories about church splits. The asinine idiocy of our behavior. Most of the time we have the gall and audacity to slap some Bible verses on stuff that is nothing more than pure carnality. Somebody couldn't get their way and they got mad. It happens all the time. No thought about what about testimony. What are people thinking about Jesus? What are they thinking about us? I gotta land a plane here. I'm gonna give you four suggestions based on this. I'm so passionate about this because I've just lived too long to see. Uh, you, got, you got. I tell you. I, I, <laughs> I can tell you all kinds of stories of the disintegration of churches, organizations, and institutions, and all of that that goes back to what Paul is talking about here. Arrogance and pride. So let me give you these four suggestions. Number one, make things right with people. Make them right. Some of us need to make some phone calls today. Some of us need to send some emails today. Some of us need to make some appointments to look people in the eyes today. Make things right with people. Make them right. The second thing that I would say is uh, give, but don't barter in your relationships. You know what I mean by that? I said that earlier. Don't, 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 don't get into bartering relationships. Don't get into that. Give. Take the high road. Just, you know, well, you know, I invite them over to lunch. They never invite me over to lunch. I paid for this. They never paid for this. I do, just, forget that. Forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Kick it up. Don't barter. You start bartering in relationships, I got to tell you, you ain't going to have too many good friends. Don't barter your relationships. Just give. Number three, run from denial and pretense. Don't fake joy. Don't fake joy. Some of us are conflict-averse. And because of that, we, we are reticent. But it eats us alive. You know you've been hurt by people. You know, you know somebody's done you wrong. You know that there's some issues that are not resolved. Don't pretend, that it's, it, don't pretend that it doesn't exist. And please, don't play the spiritual game. Don't play that spiritual game. Oh, I've just given it to the Lord. Well, if, yeah, that, if you have, that's fine. But are you sure you have? Or are you just trying to impress people with the right words? Run for pretense. The truth, transparency. Work on these issues. Resolve them. Do what you need to do. And the fourth and final one is this. Remember, we represent the integrity and hope of the gospel. You want the quality of your relationships to tell the truth about Jesus. Now, I said early on, I said early on, you know, sin is a part of our our existence. and You know, I mean, I, yeah, I'll go there. I mean, I got people who don't like me. I've got people who left this church. There are folks who won't return a phone call to me. Um, they're, you know, I mean, I'm 66 years old, and I've offended people. So, so you, you know, the, the, the deal is this. Okay, what, what you do is you make sure, though, you reach out and you do all that you possibly can if they don't want to respond, that's fine. I mean, it ain't fine. You want them to respond, but you know what I'm saying. It's okay. You do all that you possibly can do. Why? Because you want to lay down with a clear conscience and you don't want to violate the hope and integrity of the gospel. That's what we need to do, church. That's what we need to do. It is my prayer, and you've heard me say this. You've heard me say this here. I've said this to Karen and others who are close to me to hold me accountable to this. My goal in my life is is to not have anybody that I can't look straight in the eye and say to them, by the grace of God, I don't have anything against you. That's my ambition and goal in life. We're to reflect the unconditional love and forgiveness of our Savior in our relationships. Let's stand together. I want to encourage you. If you're not sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that's the primary relationship of all of life. And none of this stuff will make much sense, and you won't be able to pull off any of this stuff without first knowing that your sins have been forgiven. And he stands here today with his arms wide open and says, come. And all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I trust you as my Savior and Lord. I invite you in, and he will cleanse you and forgive you. If you're struggling with anything today, you have any burden on your heart, anything that uh, you, you really want God to, to do for you, and you'd like to have someone pray with you, there'll be elders and Stephen ministers and staff members up front, we would love to pray with you. Don't walk out these doors carrying that load. We want to walk with you and help you to carry it. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace, and thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the clarity of your word, Father. Help all of us and help me as I search my heart. May we not take our relationships casually. But may our relationships tell the truth about our Savior and what He's done for us. Help us, we pray. Grant courage where courage needs to be given to write that email, to make that phone call, and make that appointment, or simply to just release it and forgive. Lord, we can't choose joy if we don't choose what is right. So help us to choose what is right so that our joy is authentic. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.